Welcome to the Journal of Biophilic Design podcast. Many thanks for joining us today on the Journal of Biophilic Design. Um, first of all, if you haven't heard already, there's a bit of news. We've got, we're launching the Journal of Biophilic Design as a magazine. So it's available on Kindle. There's also a hardback version. There's over 100 pages of colour and ideas and stuff on biodiversity and um, sustainability, as well as um, the science behind biophilic design, um, living walls, nature walls, and um, so much more else, psychoacoustics, and anything that you want to know about biophilic design will be in the magazine. First first theme is on the workplace. But today, um, I'm really excited to be joined by Michael Potts, um, where, whose name you may or may not know, but he has spent more than 30 years as a wildlife cameraman, working mostly for the BBC. And and over 50 countries and in particular he's worked on the series with David Attenborough um the life of birds and also the life of mammals and also many other programs in the natural world series so he's now working with stills photography and both wildlife and landscapes his website is gorgeous and I'm going to put a link to that on the blurb that goes with this this podcast he's worked here and abroad um so Michael first of all many thanks for joining us today pleasure to be here and uh, discuss the a lifetime of, of fascination with the natural world. That's fantastic. That's lovely. I'm so I'm so looking forward to this. You know, I'm kind of I'm like a dog with five tails. <laughs> um, can you um can you tell us kind of what what sort of got you into photography and what part of your journey what you know what your journey was, please? Well, I I started life from an industrial background. Really, I lived in the West Midlands, so very densely populated, very industrial. And I always wanted to get out into the countryside to escape, if you like, from that from that environment. And I had a good friend um, whose parents had a little bungalow out in the countryside, uh, which bordered onto a canal. And we had a we had a double double kayak that we used to go down this canal and watch wildlife. And of course then things were abundant. This was over 50 years ago. So kingfishers were everywhere. So were water voles. Um, so were coots and moorhens and herons. And it was an absolute, I mean, the difference in 50 years is quite stunning, really. Mm. Um, and looking looking back on it, we used to have, in the industrial middles, we'd have skylarks nesting on the slag tips from the steelworks. And now they're a rare bird. So it's it's just incredible what's happened. Um, so I, I <laughs> that really sparked the interest in wildlife. We used to build hides and listen to tawny owls at night, and um, we just used to do all those things. Uh, we were only nine, ten years old, but that sort of sparked an early interest and a, and a need really for the to be in that environment. And I started to to ring birds and um, became very had a very close involvement with birds by catching and handling them and ringing them for migration studies. Mm-hmm. And then um, I went on to work in zoos and that gave me more contact with, with animals and led on eventually to wanting to, to photograph them and film them. Mm-hmm. So it was, it's been, it was a long process because I worked in industry for several years. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's only when I got to 
probably age 80, 28 or 30 years old, that um, I got involved with filmmaking. And that really developed from a hobby. I'd been filming birds as a sideline and then I was made redundant from the job I was doing. And so I thought, well, let's give it a go. And I spent a whole summer filming a sparrowhawk at the nest and got some fairly unique footage. And um, I heard through a friend of mine that someone was making a film <clears throat> on, um, on birds of prey in Ireland mm. uh, called Cry of the Mountain, which was about the demise of birds of prey, really, um, the, the drop in their populations. And so this producer actually bought this footage from me and that really sort of kick-started my career. And then I, I got a job with the RSPB film unit and um, spent four years with them before I went into the freelance market, if you like, and um, started working abroad. Wow. Most, so it was quite a long journey, really, from from my early years, from, you know, seven or eight years old. It was over 20 years before I actually started filming wildlife professionally, but it was... Um, it was an interesting journey to get there. Mm. And then, of course, I've spent over 30 years traveling, filming wildlife. And I always think I was really privileged and, and so lucky to be in the right place at the right time. Mm. Because now it's actually it's quite difficult because it's everyone wants to be a wildlife cameraman. So it's um, it's quite a difficult profession to get into, I think. Mm. So I, will, I think I count myself very lucky to have done what I did when I did um, but along the way I've seen so many changes and um, yeah so that's that's where I'm at really yeah I mean you know the the fact that you started your life um kind of being up close and personal with nature and with with wildlife I think is also is, is given you I mean like you say everybody wants to be a wildlife photographer we can all point a camera and and sort of get images and and sit and wait but I think it's when you're when you've spent those that those hours many 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 hours actually really up close and personal with animals and feeling the heartbeat in your hand you know the birds i mean can you can you kind of explain can you sort of describe a little bit of what that feels like to hold like a bird in your hand you know when you're sort of obviously ringing it um you know yes yeah. well we most birds you catch using mist nets so it's um especially if you're catching woodland birds, but we also used things called rocket nets or cannon nets mm. which are used for catching large numbers of birds on the ground, such as wading birds, shorebirds or geese or ducks, whatever. Um, so it's just actually catching the bird is quite an involved process um, and very exciting, you know, to, to set up a, a mist net in a woodland and not quite know what you're going to catch. I mean, you could catch a, you might just be catching blue tits and hedge sparrows, but you could catch a tawny owl or a green woodpecker. So it's mm. just the sheer, I suppose it's the hunting instinct, really. Mm. But then to actually have that bird in your hand and to feel its feel its pulse and the strength of it and just see the intricacies of the plumage and the, the way they're adapted for their particular way of life. You know, if you've got a sparrowhawk in the hand, you can see you know, the piercing eye and the the bill, which is so incisive and the, the legs and the feet, which can shoot out to grab the prey. 
I mean, they're just so supremely adapted for what they do. So that's that's really exciting to see things in that way. Um, so that certainly gave me an insight into how birds work. And um, yeah, it's it's yeah. it was a good grounding, I think, for, for what came later. Well, as, this is obviously the Journal of Biophilic Design. And um, as I mentioned before, we started recording. Um, people think biophilia is all about plants and and sort of air and all this sort of stuff, but it's actually also about surrounding yourself with life and living things and the living world and and the creatures. And if you think people are listening to this who know E.O. E. O. Wilson's work, who discussed this mostly in, in the 80s and then beyond, it's actually um, we have an inherent connection and need to connect to um, living species as well I mean his his um, seminal work was on uh, an ant colony <laughs> um, and it was from those studies that he realized that actually we need you know the fascination of life and and living systems um, and societal systems in our on our planet that's not just ours I think as well has an impact on how we um, relate to each other and relate to the earth and and relate to um, yeah relate relate to the planet really and 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 um, so I, I from, it was really from that that kind of um, mindset um, that I mean you've you've worked with a myriad of species and um, I mean you said even when you worked in the zoo you was working with like all like polar bears and and everything I mean I I can't even you know I mean people I'm sure there's like about probably ninety percent of people listening to this podcast are like so jealous <laughs> and you know and I've probably got a thousand questions um, to ask you um, you know I mean, for you why are, why are animals like so special uh, you know it's, I mean, it's a massive question and it's incredibly personal but for you why why are animals like so special i guess they're all so different they're so also supremely adapted to where they live mm -hmm. um i mean it's just you know i filmed birds of paradise in new guinea and grizzly bears in alaska and termites in namibia and they all have such fascinating lifestyles um i mean the termites for instance just to go aside a little bit we were filming loughborough university had been doing a study on these termite mounds and they're huge structures probably up to 12 15 feet high built from mud and clay and sand and they have the most incredible internal temperature control systems because the temperature outside can vary from maybe plus 35 or 40 centigrade during the day to near freezing at night. And yet with all this, this system of chambers and ducts within the termite mound, they can maintain the temperature within, I think it was plus or minus two degrees centigrade. And it just, and I think it was actually being used as a model for some uh, modern um, cooling systems within larger buildings mm. so that was absolutely fascinating to see these these tiny tiny insects which are only perhaps a centimeter long mm. constructing these colossal structures which um had you know quite a, an important association with or possibly important association for modern life mm. um so it was everything you know i filmed everything from termites through to through to to grizzly bears, caribou migration, and they all have their own lifestyles. And that, I think that's the fascination, really. 
and quite often, as in New Guinea, filming things that had never been filmed before and barely seen by by Westerners. So it was that was incredibly thrilling, really, to be sat in a hide, waiting for something to come. You know, sometimes waiting for five or six hours, but then to see it and to actually record it on film was so so life changing, really. Yeah, I think for me as well. When you're watching these programs, you know, like the things that you know these. So, you know, thank you on behalf of everybody for for actually you know having their skill and the talent and the desire to do these things and the patience as well, because I think. Um, you know, we forget we're in our everyday lives and we, we go from A to B and we, we forget about the impact that we're having. You know, it's like the sort of, they call it butterfly effect, don't they, or the sort of domino effect or whatever you want to say. But, you know, whatever we do here, the choices we make now, the choices what we put in our buildings or what we choose to, you know, put whatever we put like bee colonies on our roof or we create wildlife corridors in our city. I think to to be able to, um, when we see programs like the ones that you've you've made um and the, the animals and the creatures that you've documented it kind of it brings home the kind of the realization that um what we do you know will have an impact on something that we don't even we'll never even know about but that will have an impact on something else which ultimately will you know circle back and have an impact on us so you know people yeah. are listening to this who are designers we all have a choice and have a we need to make better decisions to be fair don't we really yes. um, um, I mean, I just maybe we could just touch on that a little bit just right now. But you've you mentioned at the beginning that you've seen such a difference. You know, obviously there's a dearth of of animals that you know the species that were so rich and abundant, uh, you know, really you know reduced now. I mean, could you maybe um, describe something to us that um, you know that that you really felt that you really witnessed um, a change? Well, I think even just in the UK that that. Birds that used to be common, like lapwings and curlews and skylarks, yellow hammers, all these co common hedgerow birds and um, birds of wet meadows, they're all slowly disappearing. Yeah. And really, it's um, especially with the curlew, it's it's reached quite a crisis point. Mm -hmm. There are interventions now with people protecting areas and trying to re-wet areas to provide the right habitats. Mm. But because of um, changes in agricultural practices, mainly um, drainage of wetlands, and as everyone knows, you know, the uh, reduction in hedgerows and uh, more um, prairie-style farming, mm. um, this has reduced, you know, the habitat for farm and birds uh, massively. Mm. But I think it's certainly, it's very noticeable to me anyway, the common birds um, have taken a real, real dive in the last 20, 30 years. Mm. Although having said that, some birds are doing very well, like goldfinches and mm. um, birds of busy gardens, you know, these mini habitats that people have created. Um, and of course, by feeding birds as well, it's helping the populations. So it's, um, yeah. It's, it's not all bad news, but um, we need to do more, I think, to uh, uh, improve the habitats and uh, perhaps yeah. do more predator control. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Uh, the, yeah. I was going to, you know, the, one of the things that when we talk about in this sort of whole biophilic cities, for instance, creating spaces um, for 
for wildlife for people to kind of go and enjoy and that kind of thing you know to, to instead of you know leave your car behind and go walking and walk through a city or you know but creating yeah. these wildlife havens um, and then wildlife corridors so it's all joined up so that it can go out to the so do you know what I mean so where and obviously there's a whole bunch of stuff going on with agricultural practices and I mean you think about America creating those dust bowls you know like you yeah. say that sort of prairie style I mean look what happened in America it's just like the created yeah. dust bowls so yeah. you know have we not learned anything it doesn't make you wonder it's just all about money isn't it and turnover and and pricing um but um anyway there's there's a there's a whole political thing that we could go down which maybe we should do but i'm not but I, maybe that's for another another podcast um but um yeah so again you know i think that's one of the wonderful things about biophilic design is that we we can design better for for people for our planet for the beautiful creatures and the wildlife that we love and enjoy and that gives us gives our heart makes our heart sing when we see the world full of nature and plants and birds and and things you know i think um yeah. i think yeah we, we have a choice so um i was gonna say um i mean i i, I do photography and and i do lots of work and i think i mentioned in africa and india and different places and i when i'm looking down the lens it's like it's like I have like this sort of intimate moment with whatever it is that I'm shooting, whether it's a leaf on a tree or whether it's somebody. Um, and it's kind of like when I mean, they don't know it, obviously, <laughs> because they're on the other side. Uh, but but for me, it's it's um it's like almost like polarizes a moment. It polarizes at the intensity. Your, your yeah. view of the world onto that, just onto that subject in that moment, really. Yeah. Um, it, yeah. It, yes, I mean, I I find it. But I mean, it's it's the excitement, the anticipation when you're out filming yeah. um, of what could potentially come your way, and that's that's what really uh, excites me when I'm in in the field, you know, mm. um, especially working from a hide because you're you're in this little capsule, um, and it's um, you totally detached from everything else, but you just concentrated on that one area where you expect the the bird or animal mammal whatever it is to to perform so it's um when it actually happens it's it's uh, it's difficult to describe the feeling really. but you probably get the get the yeah. impact yourself yeah yeah have, have you got an example of of something that you've shot and um you know i don't know maybe it's looked down the camera or it's just done something and you've kind of you know is there, has there been a moment I mean, i'm sure there's been like shed loads of moments but is there is there like a, a moment that you might like to share with with us to sort of to, to sort of um give us an idea of of like you know what you see and and kind of like how you felt maybe mm. well uh, i was i spent quite some time in new guinea filming it was actually a film with David Attenborough called Attenborough in Paradise. Okay. He's always been very excited by Birds of Paradise. And he made a film back in the, gosh, it must have been in the 60s with, and everything, it was filmed in black and white. And, and he'd always wanted to go back um, to film Birds of Paradise in colour and with the better lenses and equipment that, that were available. So a producer friend of mine called Paul Reddish, who worked for BBC Bristol, actually put in this film idea for A Natural World on Birds of Paradise yeah. with David Attenborough. And there were two of us doing the camera work. So it was it was actually eight months of camera work. Uh, we, do, we both did 
to two months stints each. So I spent four months basically in New Guinea. Um, the one of the species I had to film was a flame bowbird, which is not a bird of paradise, but we wanted to compare the lifestyles of, of bowbirds with birds of paradise. Birds of paradise rely on their plumages uh, in their displays to attract females, whereas the bowbirds generally have a, a duller plumage, but they rely on these bowers that they build, which are basically avenues of sticks, which they decorate with various trophies. So these might be big, colourful fruits or skulls of small mammals or pebbles or flowers. Or So it was, you've got these two incredibly different ways of attracting females. So I was filming this flame bowbird, which had never... It had been seen by five Europeans before, apparently, and never filmed. So we built a hide and camouflaged it. It was about seven or eight metres from the bower because they're incredibly timid, these birds, because they're still hunted by the local tribesmen mm. for, for their headdresses. So they're incredibly timid. Uh, so we built this hide and camouflaged it and... It was very exciting because, you know, we had it. We knew that the birds were going to come to this bower at some point, but we didn't know how many times a day it would come. And so I got into the hide and I was sat there for four hours, saw nothing. <clears throat> and of course, they're normally built in very dark situations, so there's not much light anyway. And I was working, this was 20 odd years ago, so there wasn't decent video equipment then. I was working on film. So the light, the that was very important to have good light. Yeah. And of course, when the sun shone on the bower, the bird wasn't there. And when the bird came, the sun was behind the clouds somewhere. So it was, it was frustrating because sometimes the bird came and I couldn't film it. Yeah. And then, of course, it's like never the twain shall meet. <laughs> but when they actually came together and the sun shone and the bird was at the bower, it was absolutely stunning because it was... It's a bright orange. Um, actually, I've got, got, just happened to have my book here. <laughs> I don't know whether you can see that. Uh, that's a flame bower there. You raise it up a little bit. So people listen, watching this watch it on the video. So say again. So see, it's a flame bower. Can you see it? So you need to raise it up a little bit more. Sorry. Oh, I see. Yeah. There. Okay. See, bright orange and yellow lemon yellow wow so absolutely stunning so um to cut a long story short and it's already quite long um <laughs> it took uh, 10 days to get uh three minutes of footage um so i spent i think i spent over 90 hours in the hide uh just getting glimpses every every three or four hours a bird would come for maybe 30 seconds or a minute so it was really a matter of piecing it all together getting tight shots and wide angles and trying to get off camera shots to make the whole thing cut together. Mm. But that was very exciting, really. Just every little glimpse of that bird was like gold dust. So, so wow. that's just an example of what it takes, really, to get a, a three-minute sequence. Yeah. I mean, the, the, what we used to work on was three minutes a week. Um, for the actual finished program. So. Wow, that's a, that's a lot of time, a lot of time, a lot of effort. And, mm -hmm. um, yeah. Yeah. 
it is it's it's uh, very time consuming and um i don't know what the programs cost these days but they must be in the millions yeah um, but, uh, yeah Got to just not let's just get your kit out there, isn't it? And getting all the permissions well, and everything. Right. Yeah. The technology's improved a lot too. So they've got drones help a lot, I think, to get all these unique angles on, for, especially on things like blue whales, where you can mm. actually get the top shots looking straight down on them, yeah, which were never possible. Um, yeah. Years ago. So. No, no, of course. Unless you're sort of hanging off a, off a, off a mast and kind of <laughs> great big camera. But then, you know, even uh, then you're not on top of it unless it's capsizing. Uh, but then that's, then you only get a glimpse anyway. <laughs> so, uh, uh, really revolutionized filmmaking, I think. Yeah. Yeah, yeah really. Um, just you guys talking about the Bowerbird. And just as you were saying, I was thinking, you know, some people kind of, obviously, I, I can't imagine any listener to this program um, because they've probably got that sort of mindset. But I think people, you know, think animals are all like just all one thing. You know, the fact that the bird is like decorating its nest. I mean, it's like it's a conscious decision to go and find those little mm. flowers and those colours in order to oh, attract yeah. a mate. I mean, there's there's a consciousness there, isn't it? There's a decision. There's a thought process. There's, you know, it's oh, like yeah. the attention. And there's all sorts of goings on, you know, with rival males will come and destroy the bower. They'll come in and steal twigs or they'll... A complete we we witnessed a complete trashing of one bow where a male came in <laughs> just throwing the sticks all over the place and stealing the treasures as we call them from the bower. So it's really quite funny. Well it's not funny for the bow birds, but it was from our eye, from our point of view, it was yeah. it was quite amusing to see it happen. That's a great thing when you don't you get bored sitting in a in a hide for four hours, but you don't because there's always something else going on. We think, oh, look at that, look at that snake coming down the tree, or look at that huge spider that's um, just about to run up my leg. And uh, <laughs> I did have a scorpion run up my leg. I was sat in a hide with shorts on because it was so hot. And I felt this sort of tickling sensation on my thigh. And there'd been a lot of horseflies around. I thought, oh, these horseflies are a real pain. And I was just about to smack it one. I looked down, there was this little black scorpion just about to disappear up my shorts. So I just managed to flick it off and it fell off into the into the undergrowth. <laughs> but there's always something going on, you know, you're never bored and it's it's um, it's yeah. a very exciting process. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's a, it's a fantastic like ecosystem, isn't it? Like it's a whole thing, it's a, it's a, it's a community, it's a civilization, it's a it's everything, isn't it? It's a whole different world. Yeah, you're working in a really working in nature's world. There are no humans there often. Well, it depends where you are, but mm. I think that's a fascination. You're in a totally natural, natural world. Mm. And you're privileged to be mm. um, engaged in recording it, seeing it. Mm. Wow. Has it has it heightened your I mean, it's sort of a silly question, really. I think I know the answer, but I mean, is, has it heightened your um, respect for animals? I mean, I actually imagine you always had respect, but you know, as 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 your yeah. of them changed over the years, or no, I think it's just they live their lives and they 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 have their struggles, and you know, they have to feed and they have to breed and they have to. Mm make sure the next generation is going to come along and it's um 
yeah, they have a, a struggle, I think, more so in the modern world. Mm. It's, uh, yeah, I, I do appreciate nature and um, always have done. I can't, sometimes I find it difficult to believe that people have so little contact with nature. Mm. Um, I, I, we were walking, just a total aside, we were walking once in the Brecon Beacons in South Wales. And there was a school party up there for London, from London. And this little boy said to my wife, he said, I'd, I'd never seen anything like this before. He said, I'd never been out of London. This is so beautiful. Oh. Yeah, it was, yeah. it was really moving, actually. Yeah. This little boy just had no experience of the other natural world. Um, and he was obviously bowled over. Just that one experience had probably changed him for life, you know. So yeah. it's um, yeah, exactly. That's it's what um, we need. Absolutely, we more do. More education of young people, more being able to get out into the into the environment and experience nature firsthand um, would help a lot. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah, the, in terms of as well, of like school design and things, you know, making sure you've got trees and plants and things and, mm. and like ponds so people, you know, so the kids can look at newts and, and everything else and mm. all the skaters, yeah. and, you know, I mean, I'm, that's my sort of like simple top line, but there's so much stuff that goes on in a pond even, isn't there? If, if you just put a pond exactly. in a school, um, I think just to help them reconnect or, or to kind of get inspired by. Um, but again, you need somebody... Well, right. People... If you care, if you see something and you understand it, mm. I think when you understand it, then you care about it. And if you care about it, then you might do something to try and protect it and encourage other people to do the same. So yeah. it it's has a massive knock-on effect, I think, um, just showing people what, what is out there. Mm. Yeah. It's, it'd be brilliant, wouldn't it, if we could have all that in the schools? I think it's, it's, it's a movement to make it happen. So that's um, little, it just needs to be on a bigger scale, maybe in, yeah. on a broader, broader front. Absolutely, it does. Yeah. So on on that sort of note, I mean, if people you know are sort of like stuck in cities or maybe they're they're bed bound or they're you know whatever it is as well, there's a thing called techno biophilia, um, which Dr. Sue Thomas, who I've interviewed um, a couple of times, but um, is, is like how we can learn and connect with nature through our through our technology and you know obviously our kind of devices and she even talks about gaming you know you can create worlds and and stuff and you can connect with nature that way which is a lovely idea if you can't get out and I think um one of the beautiful things I think about the wildlife tv you know television or, or films and that 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 create that those moments of intimacy and up close and personal which you wouldn't get even if you went on a walk I think really um has a really important place in our modern world um yeah. where there is a disconnect between people getting out there and that and I mean you know it's like wildlife watch and that is making people get out and and look and count and all this kind of thing um yes. I mean how do you see tv programs kind of fitting into the the kind of messaging or the inspiration or the education I mean how do you see them fitting in I think it's really important that um, it inspires people and it, it as you said, I think it has a calming effect as well I mean not all wildlife programming is calming you know a lion pulling down a zebra is probably not very calming but 
I mean, there's lots of um, beautiful images that I think um, would help people to relax and to be, um, especially in, as you say, in rest homes and hospitals where you've got images of um, just beautiful things, uh, birds in flight and uh, migrations, all of that sort of thing, um, have a really calming effect. I still feel that I have to get out every day to get my little dose of nature, even though I have a huge garden and I only live two minutes from the sea. I still feel I have to get out every day and yeah. just breathe the sea air. Yeah. Um, and that makes me feel so much better than if I've been stuck in the house all day in front of a computer. <laughs> An hour's not too bad. <laughs> um, but no, I think I think it's it has a great great part to play really um mm. i'd love to see more more within public buildings really as well i mean you could have huge projection systems and um displays of, of wildlife going on in the background that could pull people's attention uh, all yeah. sorts of things yeah absolutely um, I'm launching a thing called um, Virtual Nature Wars, and so I'll be in touch with you. I think, <laughs> um, but you know, my my ambition is to try and get as much of that into, like you say, the built environment and you know, public systems, particularly healthcare. Is there anything else that you'd like to add? Um, yeah, I think it's. I just like to say, I think I've been so fortunate, really, to spend the time that I've spent. I mean, now I'm so I'm 76, and I, I'm still I still miss doing what I did, but I can see that there's a new generation of, you know, enthusiasts have taken over, if you like, and it's a very physical job, and it's it's something I couldn't do now. But I, myself and my contemporaries always say we had the best years, because we had a terrific freedom then to go out, because quite often when you went out filming. You'd just be yourself and a biologist probably or possibly a producer but now you've got massive teams yeah. you know maybe eight or ten people with uh, with directors and with drone operators and all sorts so it, it's, not, it's not quite the same i don't think mm. so i think i'm doubly fortunate to have done it and to have done it when i did do um so it's um yeah i still enjoy I think I always will enjoy taking photographs and so I concentrate on stills now um, and I can I can do it when when I feel like doing it and mm. I'm excited now because it's the beginning of the winter migration season when all the the wild geese come in and the shorebirds so you've got these massive flocks of of geese and shorebirds on the estuaries and that's why I love doing because they're they're really wild places mm. um, I go up to the Hebrides in early November with some old friends and uh, we go there for the arrival of the barnacle geese which spend the winter there so that's an exciting prospect. Yeah wow amazing and it's, it's, it's also like you, you mentioned about um, you know it's, it's the noise isn't it the noise and the smells and the sat you know just that it's like it's not just like what they look like and everything else it's it's like the whole cacophony when you oh, get that yeah, it's the environment. It's the yeah. the smell of the salt air. It's the sound of other birds. It's the the huge skies. The the movement of the tide. 
everything comes together to create this this just memorable feeling really mm. so it's um, we always look we go every year so it's something to look forward to that's really really nice lovely i oh, just just a final question for me there really is um you know do you have a, i mean you said about the antarctic but do you do you have like a favorite um sort of environment i mean not necessarily to film in but just do you like a sort of naturally natural part of natural environment is there do you have a favorite favorite one um i think um i think probably rainforests are, are one of the is, yeah, I think it's because of the diversity and the the colour and the smells and the, just the the whole atmosphere, the the uh, the humidity and the heat and the just yeah. I mean, the last film I did was on hummingbirds in Brazil, mm. and that was just amazing. Um, in fact, I've given um, George a copy of it, um, so you might get to see it sometime. <laughs> <laughs> brilliant and for the listeners it's uh that's george harvey who does the edit the audio um intro and, and outro for this podcast so george harvey um yeah mutual mutual friend <laughs> so also you've um you've written a book which if people want to find out a little bit more can you can you tell us the title and where they can get hold of it please yes it's called untangling the knot belugas and bears and it's my natural world on film and it's uh, published by Whittles Publishing. I think it's available on Amazon. But if people want to buy it directly from me, I can give them a considerable discount. <laughs> <laughs> Fantastic. Well, I'll put the link on the website. Lovely. That's great. Well, if, if anyone um, would like to find out a little bit more, there's going to be a link on the on the blurb that goes with the podcast and also on the Journal of Biophilic Design um, website under podcasts. So... Yeah, and, and a final question, um, which I ask everybody at the end um, of the podcast, if you could paint the world with a magic brush of biophilia, what would it look like? I thought, well, with my, with my zoo experience, I think I'd have the whole, say you had a huge public building, uh, dedicate perhaps the bottom floor and create a mini rainforest with free-flying birds, toucans and... Um, birds of paradise perhaps uh, flying freely that people could walk through and smell because rainforest has a particular smell as I'm sure you know that lovely damp sweet smell and you have the bird the calls of the birds and just the whole atmosphere the damp atmosphere people could walk through and sit mm. and just absorb all of that and then go back to work refreshed. Mm. <laughs> Be quite a quite a project to build the mini rainforest and maintain it, but it's I'm sure it could be done. <laughs> you could even have a small lake with wading birds and egrets and yeah, <laughs> food for thought. Thank you for listening to the Journal of Biophilic Design podcast.